There's something about mummies and hieroglyphs. They have this mystique. Maybe it's because it's hard to fathom a civilization that built pyramids so large you can see them from space. And they did it more than 4,000 years ago. No wonder Giuseppe Verdi fell under Egypt's spell and set this ancient world to music. Aida is the epitome of grand opera. But despite its humongous cast of singers, dancers, acrobats, horses, and some very large exotic animals, maybe at its heart, Aida isn't about the grand spectacle at all. Welcome to He Sang, She Sang, the podcast that gives you deep insight and a behind-the-scenes look at some of your favorite operas. I'm Marin Lazian, and joining me in the studio is stage director David Paul, who teaches at Juilliard and the Lindemann Young Artist Development Program at the Met. Over the course of this conversation, David is going to try to do something pretty gutsy. He's going to try to convince me, and you, that despite all of its grandeur, Aida is actually a very intimate opera. Well, it's a really fascinating element to Aida if you look at the whole score, that aside from the giant scene with the triumphal return of the pharaoh's troops and, of course, the triumphal march that we all know and the procession of soldiers and trophies and stolen, you know, looted goods that they bring back, <laughs> um, actually every other scene in the opera is small. And Verdi's primary focus and I think his primary interest when he composed the opera was focusing on the three main characters, Aida, Radames, and Amneris, and this love triangle between the three of them. So when you look at the opera on the whole, you actually spend far more time in very small scenes with arias, duets, and trios than you do in this grand scale of the triumphal scene. I mean, the grandeur isn't only in the music. You have grandeur of themes as well, thematic grandeur, and, and some of the big ideas that really fascinated Verdi throughout his career. You have, you know, patriotism and a, a people being oppressed and things that are, you know, on a broad scale historically. But what I hear you saying is that, that actually at the heart of this story is a love triangle. Is that right? That's absolutely right. In a lot of Verdi's work, he had a very strong political agenda, and many of his pieces are historically based, and often quite accurately so. And so what he did in Aida was focus on, I think, the human impact of politics, and he really distilled these larger themes of patriotism and allegiance and war into individual characters who represent different elements of those conflicts and really focused on that. The chorus is very important in this opera, but the chorus is kind of unspecific as to who they are. They don't advance the plot in the way that the three main characters do. So who are these three characters that we get to know and that we're really focusing on? Well, uh, we have Omneris, who is the pharaoh's daughter, and is typically sung by a dramatic mezzo-soprano who has an incredible vocal range. She goes very high and very low, very loud and very quiet. And she is essentially a spoiled princess um, who gets what she wants and 
knows what she wants. And gets very angry when she's denied what she wants. And in this case, exactly, gets very upset when she doesn't get what she wants. On the other side, you have Aida, who is her slave. You know, normally her subordinate, obviously. But in this case, is the object of Radames's love. And in turn, they have a secret romance. Aida being a prisoner that was taken from the Nubians of the Southern Nile. And then we have Radames, who's the most conflicted in some sense, because he is the hero soldier of the Pharaoh's troops. Uh, but on the same time, it has the secret romance with a slave. Verdi doesn't waste any time leading us right into the middle of this love triangle. The first person we meet is Radames, a great war hero. We expect him to march on stage singing about battles and conquests, but that isn't what happens at all. He actually gives us something much more tender and personal. Don't let that fool you, though. Singing this aria is still a heroic feat for any tenor. Yeah, Celeste Aida is one of the most feared and one of the most beautiful arias in the tenor repertoire. It starts the opera and it is entirely exposed. And in a sense, it's a very atypical aria for a heroic character because he walks out on stage and essentially sings this glorious love ballad to Aida, who's not even on stage. So it's a very intimate, very vulnerable moment for him, and yet so full of passion and emotion that it's got very long, soaring lines. It's a slow aria, but full of fire at the same time. It has a famously challenging ending. In the score, Verdi wrote that he wanted the final high B-flat sung pianissimo, uh, <laughs> which is very challenging technically to do and also a lot of tenors in history have felt like that's a cop-out and they didn't want the audience to get angry at them for sort of pooping out on the final <laughs> note um so different tenors approach it different ways some sing it once loud once quietly essentially changing the music others do one or the other all right setting aside the question of whether verdi's intentions actually matter here's my question if the point of this aria is to express Rodimus's forbidden love for Aida, then which ending does this better? Let's do a tenor comparison. First up, we have Placido Domingo singing Celeste Aida. Listen to how he handles that high note at the end. Thank you. 
Well, that high B-flat is definitely not pianissimo. It's full-bodied and powerful, just as you'd expect from a war hero. Okay, so let's listen to one more. This one is Jonas Kaufmann also singing the final bars of Celeste Aida. Now, remember, Verdi marked pianissimo beneath that high B-flat. It's supposed to be very, very quiet. Let's hear what Jonas Kaufmann does. Well, that's different from what we heard from Domingo just a few moments ago. Here, Kaufman starts strong, but then works in a decrescendo, getting quieter and quieter until he's singing just above a whisper. In fact, as he settles into a true pianissimo, he shifts into his falsetto. Falsetto is light and airy, but it's also deceptively difficult to pull off. It may not sound as obviously strong as a forceful fortissimo, but it requires even more breath support and fine-tuned control. So what was Verdi up to here, asking his tenors to float this high note? Maybe he was using just one small musical choice, a single dynamic marking, to reveal something important about Radamus. The war hero is strong, but he's also deeply vulnerable when it comes to the woman he loves. My guest is stage director David Paul, and we're about to meet the two other characters involved in the devastating love triangle that's at the heart of Verdi's Aida. Following Radames' glorious aria about uh, his love for Aida, we go right into a trio between Radames, Amneris, and Aida where we realize what the brewing conflict is. He's surprised by Amneris coming in, and then further surprised when Aida walks in too, and he has to try to conceal his true feelings before a very perceptive young lady in Amneris. And we have three completely different vocal lines, and we have a beautiful soaring uh, line from Aida that kind of expresses her, her own conflict. Amneris, meanwhile, is raging on the side, and Verdi doesn't spend a lot of time getting bogged down with development. He just cuts right into the heart of the conflict. Oh, 
Aprile Milo, Placido Domingo, and Dolora Zajic are the singers in this Metropolitan Opera recording of Verdi's Aida, conducted by James Levine. I'm speaking with stage director David Paul about the unexpected intimacy of an opera that, at first blush, seems pretty grand. The backdrop to this story may be full of soldiers and patriotism and war, but on stage we have just three people in a room singing about feelings that are really very personal and private. If we rewind to the very beginning of Aida, we can hear that even the overture resists this notion of grand opera. Well, uh, on some levels, this is circumstantial storytelling and with hindsight, but it appears that right around this time, historically, theaters were transitioning over to gaslighting, which was a huge innovation from candlelighting, obviously. Particularly out in the house, it was now possible for a theater director to dim the lights and essentially alert the audience that the show was about to start. Where in the past, the opening crash of the percussion and the full orchestra would have alerted the audience at the beginning of an overture that they should quiet down and right, listen. Right, so shut them all up. Exactly. Um, and Verdi, having this new technology available to him and working in a brand new theater uh, in Egypt, he took full advantage of that by starting the overture with extremely quiet high strings, which is very unorthodox. It's very un-Italian in a way, uh, if you compare that to your typical Rossini overture, and allows us to immediately go to a place that, as you said, is unexpectedly intimate and sensitive for what we're expecting to be a grand operatic romp. Um, <laughs> so that's, some, that's a technique he employs again at the beginning of Act 3 as well, the prelude to Act 3, which is one of the most beautiful, lightly orchestrated, shimmery pieces of music in the whole opera and it's a very cool trick that you know Verdi was I think very happy to have if you think of the beginning of the Verdi Requiem similarly it's often done that you can barely tell if the singers on stage are actually singing or not and it's the most powerful way to to get somebody to listen up more closely than just hitting them over the head with a loud cymbal crash yeah it draws people into you rather than you Absolutely. Splashing out at them. Absolutely. Really gets people onto the edge of their seats from the very first moment. Yeah. Okay. So you're making a compelling case for some of this smaller, more intimate, quieter music being a focal point of Aida. But come on. I mean, we can't can't (laughs) totally deny the fact that there are some truly spectacular, enormous moments on stage. One of the most famous is the Triumphal March in Act Two, and you have hundreds, sometimes over a thousand people, really on stage at the same time. You've got the full chorus, you've got all of the singers. I think you have some people playing trumpets on stage. Oh, yes. 
company of dancers and animals. I mean, often <laughs> horses. Yep. But there, there was a really famous production in China um, in 2000, and they had literally over 1,500 people on stage. Mm-hmm. Uh, and an elephant. The elephant yep. actually got the biggest applause. It's I'm sure it did. It <laughs> stood up on its hind legs and, <laughs> and waved a big elephant foot at the audience, and mm-hmm. uh, everyone went wild. <laughs> and just people processing, soldiers mm-hmm. processing triumphantly around and across the stage mm-hmm. with music to go along with all of that pomp and circumstance. So wouldn't you say that moments like those stand out more to people, or do you think that we're missing something if those are the things that capture our attention in Aida? I think that it's exactly the symbiosis of the very, very large and the very, very intimate that makes Aida such a unique piece in the grand opera canon. Because, of course, you have phenomenal chorus music. You have a huge orchestra. You have, as you mentioned, trumpets on stage that were literally designed for Aida by Verdi himself. They were Aida <laughs> trumpets. Um, That's commitment. That is commitment. And you have animals. And I heard of a production where they tried having zebras on stage, but the zebras just could not get their, you know, could not get their blocking down. So they ended up <laughs> having to cut the zebras. But it's certainly an opportunity to throw everything at it. Yeah. And, you know, when you see Aida productions... You often feel that they're trying to outdo each other in the triumphal scene. It becomes this competition of who has more horses or who has more soldiers. <laughs> and the well, Met's war. It's war. It's war. It's victory. So um, you've got to go there. And the Met found itself in an interesting position when they were about to launch the production that they're still running because it's been such a huge success for them. And it was supposed to be with Franco Zeffirelli directing, who had, of course, done. Uh, many large and beautiful productions for the Met. And this was to be kind of his crown jewel. And I guess in in wanting to pull off something that hadn't been done before, he demanded that there be elephants as part of the production. And the Met stage, while strong, is not strong enough or was not strong enough to support elephants. <laughs> and it became a huge thing where the Met was saying, we cannot, we would have to literally rebuild the entire stage for these elephants and it's just too expensive and not worth it. And Zeffirelli said, I will not direct it unless <laughs> there are elephants. And you can imagine the Italian director pulling that card. And in the end, uh, he quit over it. And they couldn't, they couldn't find common ground. <laughs> of course, the designs had already, were already in process. So you can see the sort of Zeffirelli-esque aesthetic in the production. But he did not end up directing it. So that's... Wow. Yeah. Zeffirelli loved his elephants. He did love his elephants. Yeah. I think it's become a sport as an audience member to count the number of horses and the number of people. And it's, you know, it's endlessly fun to watch those scenes. And I think that's absolutely, you know, in the spirit of what Verdi did and Verdi did best, which is writing music that has an extreme complexity and virtuosity as a composer, but at the same time has melodic power and, you know, memorability in a way that I think very, very few composers ever got close to. The Triumphal March is a melody that, even though we might think it's sort of simplistic, it's the epitome of a catchy melody. Everybody everybody sings it when they leave the, the opera at the end of the night. And I think that paired with a chorus that's divided into... I want to say 12 or 13 parts at that point, three different factions, 
each with different voice types within each faction singing different music. It's an absolute uh, overwhelming experience as an audience member to hear all of that music and it's in its richness and its variedness. And I don't think Aida would work without it, of course. At the same time, you have to look at where is it in the opera. Essentially, all of this happens before the midpoint of the opera. So it's kind of a primer, if you will, to kind of get us paying attention and to give us what we, what we came for. And then he takes us a whole other route. And Act 3 has, I believe, only offstage chorus. It's essentially an act with four main characters on stage. So clearly, Verdi is giving us what he knows we want and doing so in an unparalleled way at the absolute apex of his power as a composer. But he then takes us a whole other route, which I think is what makes it so fascinating and impactful. If you were to compare Aida to a Hollywood blockbuster, which I think you can, it's sort of like Verdi alternates between these big wide shots and these extreme close-ups. I think that's a great analogy. I think a lot of these, you know, very successful warrior epic films, whether it's a Braveheart or, you know, any of that kind of giant scale epic film drama, you always have the contrast between the big scenes and then the love story that's in there. What's interesting about Aida is that it doesn't end with a giant battle sequence. It ends with the most quiet and the most intimate of duets sung between Aida and Radames as they're about to asphyxiate in their, in <laughs> their underground tomb. Yeah, exactly. Um, so that's, you know, I think having both the wide and the close-up perspective, of course, is a incredible boon and treat to an audience. Um, and it's just interesting to see where he starts and where he ends, which is not on the grand scale. It's very much about keeping it small and keeping it uh, emotionally focused. And he manages to capture the juxtaposition and the contrast, but also the fusion mm-hmm. of the large scale and the small scale in the music. Yep. And in often the productions capture it in what's happening on stage as well, visually. Perhaps the emblematic moment of what you just described is in the middle of the giant choral battle, if you will, happening in the second act in the triumphal scene. There is a moment when everybody cuts out, the entire orchestra, the entire chorus, all of the principals, except for Aida, who has a soaring line, kind of an expression of pain, of pleading. And it's the most powerful, goosebump-inducing moment in the opera, probably. And that's exactly that contrast that he's achieved uh, in scale. followed by a moment where the chorus is much quieter and you have a variety of different principles pleading their case in music that's related but contrasting. So just, uh, the, the, again, the virtuosity and the skill of him as a composer is truly mind-blowing in that scene. Yeah.
We're listening to a recording of Verdi's Aida, featuring Aprile Milo, Placido Domingo, and Dolora Zajic. With the opening of the Suez Canal in 1869, the Egyptian ruler, Ismail the Magnificent, went to great lengths to reorient Egypt away from Africa and toward its European trading partners. Part of that strategy was to persuade Verdi to write Aida. Verdi collected three times as much money for Aida as he had for his previous opera, Don Carlo. And for the Egyptians, Aida was like this trophy that they could hold high during the opening of the Cairo Opera House. When the curtain rises on Act 3, Aida is torn between her love for the Egyptian commander, Radames, and love of her homeland. David, what makes Aida's aria, O Patria Mia, so spellbinding? I think it's it's got to be partly because it is so unbelievably simple. Um, there is so little going on musically. It is a voice and an instrument in concert with each other. And that is striking and startling in a way that uh, you rarely, rarely get to hear in, in grand opera. And... Of course, it's beautifully written. It's, you know, absolutely touching in terms of the emotional quality of it. But I think there is a sound that Verdi has achieved in those in that symbiosis between the voice and the instrument that I can't think of another example quite like that. And certainly when it's well sung, which is hard, but but luckily we often are treated to great renditions of it. It halts the plot and just makes you feel in a way that's uh, really, really, really special. We've been talking about the fact that this so-called grand opera is actually very intimate. And one scene that immediately jumps to mind for me is the trial of Rodimus in Act 4. You know, Verdi could have had 500 people on stage for this scene. He could have clapped Rodimus in chains and turned the whole thing into this huge melodrama. But that's not what he did. Yeah, that's a fascinating scene in a way very 
old fashioned because the drama is playing off stage. It's almost Greek theater like uh, in that we're not watching what's happening. We're just hearing about it. But at the same time, totally radical, because what opera can you think of where the composer would not have the trial scene happen on stage, which, of course, would be dramatically, you know, very impactful and very uh, suspenseful. But instead, he puts Amneris on stage by herself while this trial is happening off stage, and we just get to hear it. Instead, we get to focus on her reaction and the impact it's having on her emotionally as she falls apart, realizing that it's her fault Rodimus is being sentenced uh, to death right next to her. So it's a really, really suspenseful, beyond belief moment in the opera where we are all sitting there and we all know what's going to happen. But there are these epic silences after uh, the timpani rolls where we're waiting for Rodimus to answer to his accusations and he doesn't answer. And then Ramphis, the head priest, says he's silent and the chorus sings he's a traitor. And that happens, I think, three times in that scene in a row. And every time we're sitting there all thinking, come on, man, say something. <laughs> and it's, Save yourself. Exactly. And, it's, and so is Omneris. And it's absolutely riveting. So it's, it's uh, very unconventional, very fascinating. Just like he does in the opening moments of Aida, Verdi shows us in the glorious closing moments that, more than anything, this is a story about the doomed love of its three main characters. In the final scene, Aida joins Radames in a vault below the temple, the vault that will become their tomb. And right above them, Omneris is weeping and praying to Isis. In the Met's current production, they uh, have a massive scale set, which is, of course, terrific. And it allows Amneris to literally be lying like a story above Aida and Radames on top of the tomb. Right. It's mm -hmm. kind of incredible. Yeah. Well, Verdi does pull off a feat as a stage director that I'm you know, in awe of, which is to somehow make 
the scene of watching two people asphyxiate slowly, nonetheless dramatically compelling (laughs) (laughs) when you think, you know, this is a tough way to end a four-hour opera. But you're absolutely there with them because their music is just so beautiful and haunting and sad and yet full of joy because they get to die together and they finally get to be together and they don't have to hide anything from anyone. It's a very, very sad and yet beautiful ending to the opera that, again, is not a grand ending. There's no, nobody's murdering somebody else or jumping off a roof or anything <laughs> like that. It just slowly, literally, the lights go out. And there's a reason it's so famous. There's a reason it's so loved. And it refocuses that attention on these three individuals rather than some giant political point or, you know, historical event. And unlike some of the historical details, you may or may not know what happened in Egypt. You may not or may or may not understand the the politics of, you know, Egypt and Ethiopia or what the pharaohs were up to or whatever. But I think one thing Verdi could rely on all of us being able to relate to was this idea of the love triangle or, you know, falling in love with someone or being in love with someone you can't have um, or being jealous, for instance. And I would argue that one of the reasons Verdi was attracted to setting it in Egypt was because people don't know the politics of Egypt. People (laughs) are not going to get bogged down in the historical accuracy of it. He was able to use that as a backdrop uh, to really explore these emotional uh, issues and these issues of loyalty and love and um, without having to worry about being accurate, which I think in a lot of his other operas, he had to because these were stories and histories that people in his audience would have known very well. Right. No fact checking in Aida. <laughs> Lots <laughs> of, a, lot of, a lot of alternative facts in Aida. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> he Sang, She Sang is a production of Classical New York, WQXR. If you liked the show, please subscribe in iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And if you visit the show page at wqxr.org, you'll find a couple of video links, and you can even leave us a note to let us know what you thought of the show. We love that. I'd like to thank our guest, David Paul, and our producer, Noelle Morris. I'm Marin Lazian. Thank you for listening. <laughs>